Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I am um, glad to be here today, and I'm certainly glad that you're here. I I always manage to find, I think, people who are on the cutting edge of talking about issues that directly relate to addiction in particular, to intimacy disorders, attachment, and love addiction. And I cannot think of a subject, you know, more straight to the line than the one we're going to talk about today with our guest, Enid Gray. So first, let me tell you a little bit about Enid, who I've known for, gosh, at least 20 years, I think, as a therapist. Enid provides counseling. She's in Houston. She provides counseling and guidance for couples, individuals, and groups with a specialty on sex and love addiction for both the addicted person and the partner. Enid has extensive experience working with PTSD, depression, anxiety disorders, and in the GLBT community. As a part of treatment, she works in EMDR as well as hypnotherapy, as every good therapist should. And she does intensives, which are quite amazing. And lately, I hear she has some interest in pro-dependence. I'm kind of excited about that. Anyway, welcome, Enid. Hi. How are you, Rob? Hey. Good. It's like talking to old friends, only we're getting recorded and we're saying things that hopefully will help people. Good. Yes, I hope so. Well, I, I, you know why I wanted you on. You wrote a book. So I want, I want everyone to know, uh, Enid just wrote a book that I think is... Well, I hate to say it's been neglected part of the field because the subject <laughs> neglect, and um, you know, as a as a child of neglect, and uh, having married someone as a child of neglect, uh, uh, I have a lot of feelings about this topic. I don't like the word latchkey kid. I don't like the thought of kids being alone waiting for a parent, and I know what it's like to sit in your room as a child with no one to come pick you up, and I know what that does to people. So, Enid's book, Neglect: The Silent Abuser how to recognize, heal, and really understand childhood neglect is something that we've needed for a long time. And I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk kind of personally and meaningfully as we go through this. So Enid, what made you write this? And thank you for coming. Well, it's just a topic that's really not been discussed very much. Therapists have known about this, but our clients usually coming come in reporting uh, perhaps very overt abuse. They're aware of that. But in the intake, when they report, they don't remember parts of their childhood or they had a good childhood, but they don't understand why they're having these problems with depression, addictions, relationship issues, all of those things. They can't recognize that they were neglected. And it's such a foundational issue that it really needed to be addressed. 
You know, it's interesting, Enid. I wanted to mention something about the collective. I've been thinking about this talk ever since we knew we were going to do it. And I've seen your book some and read a little bit of it. And, and I remember a client and group, I'll never forget this, in one, some therapy group for addiction I, re, I was running probably 10 years ago. I'll never forget this. He said, you know, I wish my dad had beaten me. I wish my dad had sexually abused me. I wish he had done anything but ignore me. Because if he'd hit me, if he'd abused me, then I could point to that and say, that's what happened to me. But he said, with neglect, nothing happened. And it's so hard to understand that as an adult, that, that the nothing can be something. And I wanted to bring that up with you because I wonder if you've run into that or if you talk about that in the book. Uh, I do talk about it. I, I kind of start with when the neglect happens so young that the person doesn't even have any conscious memory of being neglected. There's just this feeling of emptiness and loneliness, just incredible pain. But they don't know where that comes from if it happened pre-verbally. But even when children are older and remember their parents being there physically, they didn't get abandoned on the side of the road, but their parents ignored them. They were paying attention to other children in the home. Or I give a list of 10 high-risk families, uh, and that is just kind of some basic uh, situations where children may be neglected. Could you name a couple of those 10, just like briefly, I'm thinking maybe a family that has a sick child or... Yes. If there's a sick or handicapped child that gets all of the attention, the parents assume that the rest of the children or the other child has it all together. Nothing's wrong with them after all, so they can be ignored. The reverse of that would be a child that is very, very talented in one area, and then all the focus goes to that child and all the attention. So uh, the rest of the children are left feeling very lonely, and oftentimes children blame themselves for it. They think there's something wrong with them. They're flawed that mommy and daddy are not paying attention. Uh, another situation is when there's mental illness in the family, like I have a story of a child whose mother uh, had severe bipolar disorder and stayed in bed all the time, but no one talked about it. No one would explain to him. I'm sorry, Enid, are you talking about my childhood? You know, my bipolar mother who laid in bed all day and then would get completely No, really, I didn't think it was, I didn't think that was the case with you. I knew your mother had a mental illness. Yeah. But uh, the, the sad part about that is that nobody would talk about it. I don't know if they talked about it in your family, but no. it was kept hidden. It, but the child knows something's wrong and he thought something was wrong with him. So that's how his addiction began. I want to say just briefly that um, there's a therapist named John Briere, who I really admire. And uh, he taught, he was an original trauma therapist back in the 80s and the 70s. And he talked about how it isn't really any one incident or any one particular issue that causes trauma, but moreover, it's how the family handles it. Exactly. And I know for me, you know, had my parents said, your mom is ill, she's going to the hospital, this is going on, this is who will take care of you, this is not your fault, we, we, it's scary for us too. You know, if it had been understandable, I think it would have been much easier. But I think the bent, the, 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 lean, the way families lean is to cover it up. Like, don't talk to the child about it because that will upset them more. Right. And definitely don't talk to anyone outside the family about what goes on inside this family. Oh, yeah. So and I want to hear more, though, more situations. So uh, addictions uh, like alcohol, drug abuse, mother so overwhelmed trying to keep things together if dad's an alcoholic that uh, the child doesn't get 
much attention at all. But I'll also focus on the other side of uh, neglect, which is neglect as well, and that's the over-control of the child. Where let's just say, for example, parents uh, have been wanting a baby for so long and they finally have that miracle baby and they strategically plan the child's life from before the the time the child is born so that the child is told what to think, what to do, what to wear, what to be. And that is done for the sake of the parents and not for the sake of the child. That meets their needs. So you're saying that kind of narcissistic parenting or enmeshed parenting where the parents' needs come first is a form of neglect because the child's needs aren't being focused on. It's the parents' needs that are being focused on. That's correct. And I, I identify what what is in the essence of a child or in every human being. I call it the true self. And the child is not allowed to develop a sense of their true self, what they want, what they like. Children need guidance, but they don't need to be told how to feel, what to prefer, what to be. They need guidance and love and attention rather than this over-control. And, and let me ask you, Enid, I think one of the categories I, I would have included is really large families where you have yeah. you know, more, more than five kids. I've heard a lot about neglected. Did you include that too? Lost in the shuffle. I don't know if I named it as such. I just had kind of like 10 overviews of what it was like. If the child was unexpected or for whatever reason, there's a lot of reasons why pregnancies are unexpected. But uh, then the child picks up family stories where many times the family laughs about it, that, oh, well, you know, oops, we didn't mean to get pregnant, but we did. And it doesn't take much to hurt a child's little soul and make them feel as if they really shouldn't be here. Boy, I'm curious, Enid, how did you lay the book out? You wrote about the different categories of people who were families that were vulnerable for neglect. And where did you go from there? Well, throughout, I tell stories of of these different types of, of situations. And then I talk about, do you recognize yourself in any of this? Uh, And if you do, it's important that you learn to tell your story. Tell me what you mean by that. Talk about that. Because so many people operate from uh, that survival strategy that they learned when they were a child in order to survive the childhood so that they end up having a false persona. Uh, And by that, I mean, they pretend like everything's together, but inside they're falling apart. And as it's like the old saying goes, as within, so without. So they have to learn to go within themselves and spend time with themselves. And I'm, I'm a big supporter of mindfulness practice where they get to know who they are and decide what really happened. What's the truth of what happened in their childhood? And then they get to decide what they're going to do about it. And they get to decide and discover what was the strategy that helped them survive. And many times that strategy is an addiction, something they want need to stop doing. It's not contributing to their wholeness. Not to contribute to their well-being as an adult. Indeed so. It doesn't work as, as an adult like it did as a child, or they thought it did. It, did, it doesn't distract them enough from the woundedness of their childhood, and it interferes with their life. You know, Enid, one of the things that I I always believed about neglect is that when you are neglected, it makes it difficult to figure out who you are. Indeed not, yeah. 
I remember, you know, doing some workshops, uh, and I won't go into detail, but they asked us to play and have fun and be creative. It was like a break during the workshop. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. I'm here paying money. I want to get to work. Where's the work? And I watched everyone around me playing games and playing volleyball, playing badminton, playing chess. And I was sitting there fuming because the workshop, I was paying for that workshop. And the truth is, I don't think I ever really learned much about having fun or having fun with other people. Yeah. So you learn to do, but not to be. Boy, if I could get that floor clean, mom would say, good job. But if I was off playing, mom would say, where are you? I miss you. I'm lonely. Come back. And I get that completely. You can be neglected with two people in the room, can't you? Absolutely. And in fact, there's a story in here of a mom that, uh, now this was not a mom necessarily with mental illness, but she had a, a marriage that was not good. So she used her child to be her surrogate spouse. And he grew up paying very close attention to whether mom was happy or unhappy and and tried to fix it. He thought he had that kind of power. It it really messed up his life when he got into a relationship. In any rate, what you talked about, about learning to play, it's one of the uh, suggestions I make in what I call regaining consciousness. Getting to know who you are is learn to play. I love that. Regaining consciousness. That's great. Yeah. That's part of the steps of regaining consciousness. And one of those steps is to learn to play because so many neglected children had to be more of the adult in the family while the parents were like children. That's very important as well. So let me take a step back from the solutions and just say in your stories, what are some of the themes that you see in terms of how people are affected by neglect? One of the things that I talk about a lot is that it can be extreme. Neglected people either don't trust anyone at all. They think they have to do everything. They don't trust anybody. They end up being isolated in serial relationships, perhaps a sex addiction where there's no relationship. Or the other extreme, they're very vulnerable to get into relationships with people that are not safe. Or, or not suitable for them. Exactly. In other words, they don't know themselves. And so if you like me and you need me, yeah, then that mirrors what I grew up with. It doesn't matter that you don't know me or don't care who I am. Yeah, it's all about please love me. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is what we would have called back in the old day, maybe love addiction. The person exactly. who's sort of wandering around looking for someone to love them, but they're looking for the love of a child. They're not looking for the love of an adult. Oftentimes, they will choose someone on an unconscious level that mimics the characteristics of their childhood non-caregivers, I call it. And, and Enid, I'm wondering about, um, so are there people who don't choose to be in relationship or give up on relationship related to neglect? Because I hear some of that too. I think they may say they give up, but I think inside every human being is that we're wired for connection. So there is that desire for connection, but they feel that they, for whatever reason, they can't have that or can't find the right person or they're not good enough or the reasons go on and on. But it's it's very sad. And the more isolated people become, the more they're open to depression, anxiety, they're doing things that are desperate. It's, it's very sad because we, we need to connect. Well, we need to connect to survive. We are made to be in relationship for sure. And so, you know, I'm thinking about stereotypes now a little bit in terms of the addiction world. And I'm thinking from the man's perspective about, about the guy who works all the time and does nothing but work, 
because he figures if he's performing for his family and achieving, then that's what will bring him love. And of course, he's disconnected from his kids. He's not connected to his spouse. He's stressed out all the time and pushing them away because of the work, but at the same time, not understanding why they don't value and love and why he doesn't feel more valued and appreciated and loved, but he's not even in the family. Well, he doesn't even know who he is. That's right, because he doesn't know what he needs. His distraction, he distracts himself at all times so that he doesn't feel the pain. That's an addiction in and of itself. And for a woman, I can imagine, and again, I'm being stereotypic, but it's more of a love addiction issue where I'm kind of a hungry ghost, as Gabor Mate says, wandering around looking for the right guy. But I don't know who the right guy is because I don't know who I am. Yes. And many women are conditioned, at least in my generation, we were conditioned to make our bodies beautiful and seductive so that we can attract the right man. And I see so many partners. In fact, I'm thinking of several partners that I've treated that they starve themselves or they get plastic surgery or anything. It's just this desperate need to uh, prove themselves worthy so that they can have find the one. It's very sad. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. I wish I didn't relate to this, but I'm thinking of, you know, of the many hours of hard work and thinking, where's the love? But the love doesn't come with work. But it doesn't for some child. You know, I remember Tiger Woods talked about his dad and he would say things like, you know, the only, the only love I think I got from my dad was when I was, when I had a good stroke, when I hit the ball right, when I performed well in sports, my dad just loved, loved, loved me. But if I didn't, he just wouldn't talk to me. And I think, well, that's how you end up with a lot of problems when you learn that you're only worthy of love as a child for your performance, whether that's school. There's that over control. Or, or athletics or, yeah, well, you, and often trying to fulfill the dreams of a parent. I have a story of a, a gay man in here. Uh, I call him Rufus, whose, whose parents were having the miracle child. And his dad wanted a big, burly football player like himself. And instead, he ended up to be uh, more like his mother, frail and interested in music and academics. And he confided to his mother when he was uh, about 16 years old that he thought he might be gay. And his mother said, don't let your dad find out. Anyway, his story is one that is kind of a composite of many of my clients, is that he couldn't satisfy his parents' need to make him into something he was not. And so he had to move on with his life. Can I say something about that? And Enid, I feel like you have actually captured what the essence of recovering from neglect is, because it's about figuring out who you are and what you need in friendships, in all in creativity in all kinds of ways so that when you are part choosing a partner or are in a relationship, you know what your boundaries are. You know what's right for you and what you want in someone else. It is about becoming conscious. Well, that's another regaining consciousness step is setting a foundation through boundaries. That's part of it. You have to know where you end and the other begins. But first, you have to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And I'm betting some people in neglect have trouble with the word no, for example. I understand that, yes. 
desperate. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of a, uh, you might not love me if I say no, so I got to say yes a lot. Right. One of the things, neglect that profoundly resonates with me is its relationship with addiction. Because, you know, addicts talk about the hole in the soul, the donut hole, the empty part of me. Again, Gabor, Ma- Mar- Gabor Mate called it the, in the realm of hungry ghosts. And I think what, what we're really talking about is the undefined self, the person who is, it's like the flower, it's like the bud that never opened is what we're really talking about. And that person is wandering around looking for the thing that will fix them, the person, the drug, the situation, but what will really fix them, and they don't know what is already inside of them, but no one ever taught them that. But the psyche is very wise. It will find a way for you to survive anything that happens to you as a child, uh, especially neglect, and it will devise a way, and that's the addiction in it, and that distracts them so they can survive. But when they get to be an adult, it doesn't work anymore. It's not functional. Well, the thing is, I would imagine that, you know, this is one of the reasons perhaps why people struggle with recovery and healing from addiction is you can't simply stop the addiction. You have to do other things as well. You have to deep dig in and find out how to how to replenish yourself in some way that is meaningful and is like a good meal instead of a potato chip. You bet. And it's not just about getting sober. I mean, we're kind of getting off onto the topic of addiction, but it's not just about staying sober. There's lots of people in those 12-step rooms that are just sober, but it involves getting to know who you are and where that came from and healing from that. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing, and I just think, sort of going with the topic, that there's some grieving involved. Very much so, yes. Tell me about that. You have to be able to sit with your feelings, and so many people who have been neglected have have had those shut down because it's too painful to feel. I think especially men, because of the way men were conditioned, and you can probably talk more about that, but but men have to be powerful and strong, and anger is okay, but crying is not. Uh, you have to make a lot of money, be successful, look good. But if you can get in touch with your feelings, that's part of the healing. And allowing yourself to cry, allowing yourself to grieve, that's a strength and not a weakness. You know, Enid, I have to say that... Um as you folks can imagine, I spent my uh, a few years in therapy. I think I built a few swimming pools for some therapists. Uh, that's my standard joke. But I, I think I was in therapy about 27 years. And I don't recommend that to anyone who can't afford it. I'm not sure I could either, but we had good insurance back then. But anyway, um, I remember somewhere along the journey, and I needed that much therapy because I was really that troubled. And uh, you know, I still have my days. But I remember somewhere around five or six years in when it really, the work really got into trauma. And I looked up at my therapist one day and, and I realized that I was having really one of the most painful moments I was going to have in therapy because I knew, I knew for the first time that there was so much I had not gotten when I was young and, and that it was too late now, that I was never going to be four again, that I was never going to have parents like that in that age again, that I could never recover my childhood. And, and I had to own that, be sad about that, grieve about that, be angry about that before I could begin to develop the fun of being an adult. And, and for me, that was the grief. And I wonder if that is familiar to you. Very. I was the over-controlled child. So I had to grieve the fact that I was denied getting to know who I was. And it's taken me many, many years. I'm a very late bloomer because it's taken me many, many years to discover who I really am and be okay with it. And, and what have you learned that you didn't know before? 
Oh my, there's so you don't have enough time to hear it so much that I'm okay just the way I am. I'm thinking you're more fun. You're more spontaneous. Um, these would be the things I would want to come out of that kind of work. And I don't have to be afraid of every little thing. Mm. So things can go wrong. The world's not going to get in, going to end. Your experience came out in a lot of anxiety. A lot of fear. Fear that what? That people are going to go away? I'm not, a, don't want to do your therapy here, but I'm just wondering <laughs> how you relate to this. Because that's, and folks, let me just tell you, that's what makes our work meaningful. You go into the therapy field, hopefully as a young chick or older chick or whatever age chick you are. And I mean like like little bird chicks, not women chicks, just to be clear. Um, and you don't know anything. You think you're just there to help other people. And of course, somewhere along the journey, if you're doing really good work, you understand that you go into the therapy field to understand what happened to you. Yes. Well, I heard a talk by James Hollis, who's head of the Jung Center here in Houston. And he said, why did you be, get into the mental health field? If you say it's to help all those other people, you're wrong. It's to, <laughs> it's to heal yourselves. And that's exactly why. I, I'm, of course, I realize now that that's why, to heal me. But I did not even raise, uh, realize that the things that happened to me as a child were trauma until somebody named it. And I said, what? I didn't think that was traumatic. They used the word neglect? I'm the one that, that attached neglect to that. Uh, uh-huh. I haven't heard anybody call over control neglect, but indeed that's what it is. A lot of the work that I've read is Alice Miller, The Drama of the Gifted Child, and she pegs it over control. So what Edith is talking about is the, uh, it's an old book that rings true still today, but it's complicated and hard to read, but a great book called The Drama of the Gifted Child, which was written, I think, in the 70s or 60s. And it really talks about the the child whose parent has taken over their childhood for whatever reasons and made their own needs, their own wants, either for themselves or their wants and needs of the child, greater than their interest in who that child is. And then you're just putting a rubber stamp on someone's soul, really, um, which it sounds like I think can take decades to pull apart and work through. You're correct. It's a good, you put it in a very good way, a rubber stamp on the child's soul. Yeah. That's how it feels. That's exactly how it feels. And, um, you know, I want to say also to you folks who are listening that um, being a, because us therapists are broken people in our own ways, it can be the best and the worst. Meaning if you find some one of us who like Enid, I believe, or perhaps in many ways myself, I hope, who has a deep awareness of our own stuff and we've comfor- we're comfortable with it, we understand it, it means that we'll sit with you through your pain and not react to it. We can just be with you and give us our, your wisdom and give you our wisdom and guidance. It's the therapists who have not worked through their issues and really are just think they're there to help other people who are the ones who really need, may not be the best ones for you to see because they're not, they may be playing out a script in your soul that may have nothing to do with your actual needs. And, and that's why it's so important to find the right person to see. May I add to that uh, in saying that it's very, very important with neglected people that the therapist be totally present for them, which is nothing that they've experienced before. Someone that really sees them and really hears them for who they are. That's so important. And I want to add to that. That doesn't mean that they are indulging every whim of the client or encouraging the client in every moment no. or you know, being some kind of happy parent. That also may mean sitting through that person's scripts that they play out to try to get attention, to try to get validation. The 
false self scripts that you talked about earlier until that person kind of gets frustrated. The therapist, why aren't you giving me what I need? I'm doing what I always do. And the therapist has to say, well, that's not really what gets love and attention. You know, it's sometimes those moments when we're not being loving, but we are being attentive that the the magic can happen. Oh yeah. You have to challenge some of their faulty beliefs. That's part of it too. So Enid, um, I, I know there's some irony because this is where we started and this is where we're going to stop in the fact that you wrote a book about neglect, which is, I think, boy, how many books are there about physical abuse? How many books are there about sexual abuse? How many, how many books are there about violence and, and those kind of issues in childhood? And this is a, okay, don't laugh at me, a neglected subject that has, is as profound as all of those other things that I mentioned. And I know, Ina, that you must have done some research, and I'm imagining you didn't find the depth and breadth of abuse literature under neglect that you find in these other areas. That's exactly right. And let me say, I'm not out to make a killing because, you know, I'm finding you really don't make tons of money unless you're Stephen King or someone. I just want to get the word out. I want Mm -hmm. people to find a place that they can find themselves and heal. This is where the joy happens, folks, you know, and I really mean that. And I, I've, like I said, I've had a lot of therapy, a lot of 12 step and Enid and I've been friends a long time, but I have to tell you that what she's talking about is, is the recovery part. It's the part where you get past the addiction and you say, okay, what gives my life meaning? What brings me joy? How do I be with someone that I like, that I appreciate, that I think is worthwhile, not someone who's just there to make me feel okay? This kind of work that isn't a book like this is where that all comes from. The part, the good part of recovery, the part that we want to reclaim and say, yes, this is how I get a joyful life. So I am thrilled that you wrote this book. Folks, this is Enid Gray in Houston, a therapist and a colleague. How can people get a hold of you and find out? The book you said is on Amazon? Yes, it is. You can just... Uh type categories, books, and my name. My first name is spelled E-N-O-D, which is kind of an unusual spelling. Long story with that, but uh, Enid Gray, G-R-A-Y. So that's how to get the book. If you wish to communicate with me, feel free to email me and my email address, Enid, E-N-O-D, at trueselftransitions.com. Dot com. So folks, if you want to get a hold of Enid, and I think you should, if this is a great topic to talk to a professional about, you can reach her at Enid at trueselftransitions.com. And the book is called Neglect the Silent Abuser. It's on Amazon. If you're an addict or someone in recovery, if you know someone in recovery, I think this is something that might be considered because you know what, folks, it comes from somewhere. And if you really struggle and don't know where it comes from, this can be one of your clues. Um, Enid, thank you so much for joining us. Will you come back? Certainly. I'd love to. I think we should talk a little bit about, you know, when we come, when you come back, a little bit about how you see this affecting addiction and sex addiction, love addiction, and specifically the clients that we see. I'd love to know how someone who is neglected as a child ends up marrying a sex addict. You know, I'm sure that, that you have a story for that. So, um, folks, we'll be back. Enid, thank you so much for joining us. And as always, we're glad to have you. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. 
On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.